the more I learned like how to express not only like what I was feeling, but like what things impacted how I was feeling. Like, oh, I do this thing and I'm really tired after it. Like, why is that? It's not physically exhausting, but what's happening here mentally for this to happen? It's like, okay, your brain works like a muscle. It's using up glucose, especially if your attention switching a lot of the time, you're using your brain's resources and eventually it runs out and you need to top it back up. So it's just like wanting to know, okay, why is like using this product or or using this tool? Why does this make me so tired? Welcome to the Digital Habit Lab from Mind Over Tech, a place where we explore our relationship with technology. I'm your host, Men Kasangvi. In each episode, I'll be joined by guests from different walks of life as we observe how we use tech, reflect on how it sometimes uses us, and experiment with ways to make sure it is actually helping us to do what we value most in life. Each season of our podcast focuses on a theme, and this one is about intention. We're asking questions like, what is intention? What does it feel like to be intentional? And why is it so important to the way we use technology? What if technology were designed to work in harmony with what our brains really want? That's just one of the many fascinating things we discuss in today's conversation with Scott Riley. He is a deep thinking and straight talking designer of tech products. His book, Mindful Design, came out in 2019 as one of the first and perhaps the first practical guide for designers that are interested to get away from addictive and habit-forming approaches and move towards something more mindful and respectful. Scott is a highly sought-after speaker and consultant, and he runs his own design practice. Because there was too much to pack into just one episode, we have prepared two episodes for you. And in this first one, we get to know Scott and understand some of the underlying concerns he has about design. He shares his own journey and challenges with mental health and how he came to understand his relationship with technology better. But before we start, a warning. Scott speaks with a passion and honesty that sometimes makes the language not entirely appropriate for young ears. Hey Scott, it's so good to see you again. I love your room. It looks like the lab of a creative genius. (laughs) (laughs) That's one word for it. You mean I've utterly trashed my room looking for a screwdriver? (laughs) So we're going to start off with some quick fire questions and then there's three or four deeper questions that I want to explore with you. Yeah, of course. Okay, so first one, what comes to mind when I say the word intention? I would say it's an acting or behaving in a way that wherein you are conscious of either the goal or the impact of what the result of that that action or behavior might be. So rather than kind of just going into autopilot and letting your um, lizard brain take over, I guess, (laughs) your reptile brain take over, kind of just being aware, understanding what the the end result of of your action or behavior is going to be and and either changing the way you, you act or behave or framing the context in which you act or behave based on that. And so how do you know, personally, when you're not feeling intentional? Um, so this is like, again, this is like probably quite personal to me. So I have some pretty, I guess, non-typical mental processes and, uh, I have mental health problems. I I struggle with uh, depression and anxiety on a daily basis. So for me, it's obvious 
a lot of the time because they are feelings that I associate with like rumination, for example, like if I'm, Hmm. if I'm ruminating on something that's like, I have learned through learning to cope with, with depression, what rumination is, what it feels like, um, how to spot it. So a lot of the stuff when, if I feel like when I'm not being intentional about something, it's kind of rooted in negativity, which I don't think is right because we don't need to be as humans intentional all the time. Like intentionality implies some form of task positivity, right? It implies that you are doing something for, at least if you go with my working definition of intentionality, it's about doing something to experience a specific result that you are potentially aware of beforehand. As humans, we need to be to be able to switch off and daydream, uh, not necessarily ruminate, which is an, the negative side of, of daydreaming, I guess. Um, but we need to be able to switch between being task positive and being, um, you know, just letting the, the kind of like default mode take over and letting us kind of daydream or be wistful or be romantic or like whatever else like happens when you're not being intentional. Right. So I think for me, it's a kind of, it's not something I always look for, but I can, I can spot now when I have a negatively impacting lack of intentionality, if that makes sense. Getting out of the rut or out of the rumination is the hard part. Like recognizing it now is, is quite easy for me because I have to be aware of, of that as a matter of mm. self-preservation, right? So what do you do when you're in that kind of state of mind? Like when you're feeling unintentional, you're ruminating, you're in a rut, what do you do to switch out of that mode? The easy answer is medication. <laughs> and like, mm. that's like, uh, like something that I'll like always be an advocate for. It's, it's a balancing tool. The biggest impact that's, that's had for me and that has been just get medicated and getting over the stigma of what that means and stuff like that in terms of managing those things more in terms of like a lifestyle thing I found journaling really helps anything that helps you try and express or build your vocabulary up to describe what you're feeling being able to put words to to specific like kind of mental structures or specific emotions this is what happened or this is this is what what triggered me in some way into going into this mode this is how it made me feel so I journal as much as possible um in terms of actually getting out of those mindsets for me like having a an outlet of some sort is is useful um for me it's almost always music like being able to like pick up a guitar and just play it and improvise and stuff like that has has been a nice like coping mechanism for me. What's your favorite piece of technology right now? It could be hardware or software. What are you really enjoying using? I'd say like in terms of hardware, I've just got a new guitar amp. Um, and that's just really fun to play with. It's just a, a really small um orange um i've been playing like guitar for like, pushing 20 years uh, and for the past five or six years i've just played with like kind of all digital stuff so this is the first like analog uh valve amplifier that i've had in about 15 years 
So I'm having a lot of fun with that. Like it's, I mean, it uses valves with just like a century old technology, but yeah, just being able to like have a very limited set of controls rather than this like endless kind of digital, so many possibilities thing. It's been really good, really grounding. In terms of software, my answer to this is always IA Writer. If anyone's used that, mm, you mentioned just, it in your book as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm all the time. Just a just <laughs> a ma- massive fanboy of it because it does exactly what it's supposed to do. Um, but yeah, just a really good writing application. Um, I use it a lot, kind of just like jotting my thoughts down, trying to write, um, make sense of the world. It doesn't get in the way. Uh, really en- helps enable focus. So guitar amps and and text editors that's that's the extent of my joy brilliant one of the things you mentioned in your book about ia writer is that when you're writing it actually helps you focus on just one sentence or just one paragraph which is amazing yep yeah it's so good it basically desaturates everything to like a really light gray um and kind of puts the the sentence that your cursor is in in like a very kind of high contrast um very dark gray so anytime you switch to a different sentence while you're writing or proofreading you are focused just on that sentence like to me when i was writing a book it was hard to come up with examples of of products that especially with in terms of attention that like kind of mimic not not so much how the brain works but what the brain wants right like but like to an extent, that's what we do when we when we focus our attention on something. You know, we if we're capable of it, we drown out background noise. We forget about what we don't forget about. We just don't apply our attention to things that we are not focused on, and we are capable of. I think it's amazing that we are capable of this of of focusing on. The example I always use is like having a conversation in the middle of a coffee shop. Like if you were to stop and just listen to the amount of shit that goes on in like a coffee shop you got all the orders being processed you've got you know things being served people ordering coffees getting made conversations happening all over the place um a lot of times you've got like music playing um but we can go into an environment like that and without much in the way of kind of like external tools um focus on something like i when i was writing the book i wrote a shitload in public spaces and it didn't you know i was able to sit there and look at my screen and write or if you're there with a friend you can sit there and you can you know for the most part have a conversation with them and focus on on what's going on and i think like ia writer is such a good example of a product that just plays to that definitely gonna check it out Love I'm that. sorry that like my answers to the the hopefully quick questions have been super long. <laughs> the questions are short and quick, but the responses not so much. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But I think it still works. So you've told us about some tech that you love. Now I want to ask you about something that you have a bit more of a difficult relationship with. Easy Twitter, too much. I use it too much. People who look at me and see my tweets will agree that I use it too much. Um, <laughs> I It's just, yeah, it's that, that, that perfect blend of intrinsically rewarding snacks that are never enough to like fill you up as soon as you like see likes or like that, the small chance that you'll go viral. Like imagine that, like so exciting and just having, 
what is essentially a void to shout into that is kind of what's the word curated i guess to be a little bit of an echo chamber and a little bit of a bubble and to have that reinforced by the like the social currency that comes with that product that is like for the way my my brain works that is just like pure tech addiction right and you know i was i was worse with facebook but i managed to delete that and i don't know where it is about twitter probably because there's like 14 people on there that i really like and i don't want to not speak to them (laughs) i don't know where it is but yeah i'm on there far too much far too much yeah i know the feeling i follow some really smart people on there and i think there's a certain kind of what's the word validation intellectual validation which you get just by being on there and following those people and sharing and yeah it's very addictive (laughs) yeah the other thing that worries me about twitter is it actually starts to affect what i'm noticing in my life generally i'll give you an example i was reading this book the other day and there was this sentence and my eyes focused in on it my mind said i need to tweet this and it freaked me out a little bit actually because I didn't even have my Twitter app open at that time, but it was still affecting what I was noticing in that book in that moment. Yeah. Like now you've got that stored in your brain. Like when I get home, I'm going to tweet this or like, yeah, it's incredibly pervasive. Yeah. And it's just like, there's no nuance, right? Like when someone is wrong on the, not, not wrong in the sense of like, oh, time to mansplain to you, but like kind of alt-right like terrible human is somehow still on twitter and it's like oh yeah now it's time to rally around and fucking take down this this shit person and it's like you know it's slacktivism isn't it really that's what it fundamentally boils down to it makes you makes you feel good for feel like you're doing some sort of activism when when really you just we're all still just tweeting that's (laughs) fundamentally that's what's happening I mean, clearly Twitter can be a powerful platform for change. So advocacy and activism is happening on Twitter. But what I hear you saying, and perhaps a critique of slacktivism, is that maybe the feeling that we get is disproportionate to the actual impact that we're having. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's what a like represents, for example, or what a favorite represents, or whatever the the metrics of choosing are. They are like extremely short-lived extremely distilled versions of things that we need as humans right like social validation or feeling of competence feeling of mastery feeling of belonging all that kind of stuff when you write a tweet you are hardly writing like a a world changer manifesto right like usually you're limited to 280 characters usually it's off the top of your head Usually it's bullshit that you'll forget about a day later or two minutes later and move on to the next topic. But you are going through the very, very, very extremely distilled process of creation, right? And like some tweets are actual art. Like there are tweets that I would literally print out and frame because they are so fucking funny. But most people, when they tweet, it's either inane, vapid bullshit or it's, stuff designed to get a reaction of some kind right and the response you get to that is just as distilled and just as like surface level like what the fuck is it like 
Like it's, you know, you apply a lot more to it than where it actually is. It's a, like a number that goes up when people press a button, but what you attach to that, right. And how you perceive that is completely different to like the actual system model. So you are getting a tiny, 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 like bite size, like amount of social validation or inference towards competence or something like that from the result of creating something right the thing you're creating is so low effort that it barely registers and the reward that you get from it is so surface level that it will never kind of sate our, our need for validation and rewards it's like the same thing like if i'm hungry and i've got like a bowl of popcorn on my desk i'm just gonna keep taking a little bit of popcorn at a time rather than like going downstairs to the fridge and cooking a meal, right? It's the, the fundamentally what I'm going to do. Like, fucked if you think I'm going downstairs and making a meal if I've got popcorn in front of me. So we get trapped into this cycle of the work that we put in is small and the reward that we get from it is also never enough, but it's something, we're doing something and we're getting some feedback and the feedback loop is usually really short. Now you've really got me reflecting all those articles that I haven't written Maybe there's even a book that I've not written because Twitter short circuits my creative instinct. Like I'm satisfied enough that I don't go on to creating those more meaningful, substantial things. Yeah, yeah. Because you think you've accomplished something. Like it's, it's such, a, such an easy trap to fall into. Right, I have your book in my hands. Mindful Design. How and Why to Make Design Decisions for the Good of Those Using Your Product by Scott Riley. It is an amazing book, super insightful and practical. I wish it existed when I first got into innovation and design thinking. I'd love to hear you talk us through it. But first, I'm really curious about your journey. Like, how did you get into this subject? What made you so fascinated with how your brain works? Because not everyone working in design and tech thinks deeply about that. Yeah. So like I mentioned before, I have like problems and struggles with, with my mental health. Um, that's not a new thing. It's something I've been dealing with for a very long time. It was never expressed or like, I guess as well, like growing up 20 odd years ago, kind of like working class Liverpool. It's not a huge thing that was discussed at the time. I didn't have many friends who like we went in touch with our emotions like I see it now with like I guess the next generation from me like they are and we're like so much more open about like their emotions but like for me that was never a thing right it was you know kind of where do we go to not get caught smoking that was like the biggest thing that bothered us like uh, at 14 and 15 <laughs> so like I didn't even know therapy was an option for like 10 years of my life <laughs> like for me it was just about where if I'm interested in it I like I want to know how does this work at its core like with all the different parts of this system so I was like right to understand my brain I just need to read about how brains work and just got into like a big kind of like spiral of like brain science self-help books all that kind of stuff and then at the same time was like slowly building a career in design which is where the two 
things I was studying, I guess, like design, product design and like brain science and all that stuff kind of merged together. The last time we spoke, you mentioned that there were certain product design tools, software that made you feel exhausted. Yeah, I think uh, the more I learned like how to express not only like what I was feeling, but like what things impacted how I was feeling. Like, oh, I do this thing and I'm really tired after it. Like, why is that? It's not it's not physically exhausting, but what's happening here mentally for this to happen? It's like, okay, your brain works like a muscle. It's using up glucose, especially if your attention switching a lot of the time, you're using your brain's resources to to do shit and eventually it runs out and you need to top it back up. So it's just like things like that, like what wanting to know okay why is like using this product or or using this tool like design tool for example like why does this make me so tired like i found out that maybe that wasn't very very normal like (laughs) other people weren't really experiencing that they were using it and i was like well okay so this is clearly not designed for me there's things that make this really difficult for me to use that other people don't encounter And so it was your personal experiences and challenges, it sounds like, that made you realize that there were some bad design decisions being made somewhere along the line. Yeah, like over time, you put two and two together and you're like, well, people are even making decisions to do this and actively deciding to just ship a product that isn't accessible to neurodivergent people or people are not taking that into into context when they make their decisions so they are making biased decisions or uninformed decisions and then it's kind of like okay well extrapolate that right like i'm very privileged person for the most part and i'm finding parts of the world that aren't designed for me because of you know systemic bias or or um kind of people being like blind to their own own biases and and stuff like that so extrapolate that you know further down the amount of people who must feel like this on a regular basis like was really that that like was a big prompt for me to like really explore okay what what are we doing in this industry right now to be in this position where we're creating these products that are designed largely by privileged people to solve problems that are experienced largely by privileged people. Like what are we actually doing here? Is this a conscious effort or is this just systemic bias playing out across an entire industry? And turns out it was a bit of both. And I was like, this is not the only way, this can't be the only way to to build shit, right? This can't be the only way to design. Um, so pretty much from from that point, kind of dedicated a a huge part of like my personal development towards finding alternative approaches um not saying i've got got it figured out but i've kept trying and trying and trying and eventually that's what came out in the book so let's get real about privilege Like, we've just had this whole conversation earlier about how much Twitter disturbs our minds. And I often think that these kinds of concerns about the mind, attention and technology can sometimes sound a little privileged in themselves, because not everyone gets to worry about turning notifications off or 
whether they should quit Facebook or or whatever, because they might have bigger concerns in their lives, like how they're going to feed their family that night. Yep. But there's something about your framing in your personal experience and in your book. It's refreshing. It's different because you're looking at the bigger picture and you're referring to it as overall cognitive load. So you're actually saying that if someone's facing a challenge in their lives, whether it's neurodivergence or racism, poverty or anything, their mental capabilities are already compromised in some way. And so everything we're talking about now, including how Twitter works maybe, is an even more important consideration for those that aren't privileged, that are having a hard time in some area of their lives already. Have I understood that correctly? Yeah, yeah. The idea that systems, they almost self-select out the people who aren't compatible with them is, is nothing new. It's a fundamental idea behind you know social justice and and social campaigns right is that we need to question the systems more than we we question the behaviors of well as much as we question the behaviors of actors within the systems um so i think a huge problem that we have with the way we design and build tech products right now is that we assume that there is a and this is true for a lot of accessibility. And I think fundamentally this is an accessibility discussion of, of sorts, but we assume a level of capability as the baseline for what we build. So when we talk about accessibility um, for people who are visually impaired, for example, we might create a product that is inaccessible because it is not screen reader friendly. That's kind of like a very kind of, introductory accessibility problem that a lot of people still struggle with after 20 plus years of web development but you know a fundamental reason why so many products and and websites are so shit at accessibility is because we don't set the threshold i guess of of capability at the right point the price of entry is different based on if you are are visually impaired or not and it's the same for people who are neurodivergent or otherwise cognitively impaired. If you set your baseline requirements for attention, at what is supposedly a normal level, like a neurotypical level, you are creating something that is usable predominantly by people who are not suffering or struggling with things in their life or things in their brain that impact their cognitive faculties right and and you know we're not just talking about oh this person is men mentally unwell so they have limited cognitive faculty you know as you mentioned poverty has a profound impact on your your cognitive faculties a lot of it is down to the worry that comes with that a lot of it is down to if <laughs> if you're worrying about how you're going to fucking feed your kids you're not thinking too much about oh should i be you know, applying my attention to this thing or not, right? Um, or you are also kind of less able to protect yourself from from things that are designed to take advantage of, of you know, lower cognitive faculties. Um, so, yeah, like fundamentally, we are talking about, to me anyway, like accessibility issues in the way things are designed for people with limited cognitive faculties it's more than just oh someone with adhd can't use my product i should rethink that it's things like oh 
someone in poverty is gonna struggle with this um someone who's suffering from like you know systemic oppression is gonna struggle with this we are fundamentally creating conformist products I think all designers, we need to be more cognizant of the impact of our work. And what I loved about your book is that it's less about morals and ethics and it's just quite practical. It's realizing that when I do X, people are affected in terms of Y. And so let me just pause and think, is that really necessary or desirable in the scheme of things? Yeah, I think it's... uh... The responsibility side of it is is super important. I think it's easy to fall into the trap of um, being preachy with this kind of stuff. And I do think fundamentally we do have ethical, moral obligations to to doing this stuff, like in what we perceive to be the right way. Um, but that it's not my place to mandate those morals and ethics, right? It's It's about if you can understand the impact of of what you're doing and the the what it costs someone i guess to like to look at the the shit you've made or to use the stuff you've made or to process what you've put in front of them if you can understand that impact and understand that it is somewhat transactional i mean i will call out bullshit when i see it but fundamentally um it's not my job to tell anyone what problems to apply their skill set to solving. It's more about helping people realize the impact of, of our decisions. I love that. So the problem is that we've gone way over time. I, I actually wondering seriously whether to turn this into two episodes. <laughs> okay, so let's wrap up here and call this part one. Where can people learn more about you, follow you, and connect with you? Uh, yeah, so ironically, I'm most active on Twitter, which uh, <laughs> so that's Scott underscore Riley. If you want to buy my book, uh, you can find more about it at mindfuldesign.xyz because all the good domains were taken. Um, <laughs> You can get it online. I would recommend trying some of the the more local or independent places out first. That was part one of two episodes with Scott Riley. A big, big thanks to him for his time and for his hard-earned insights. And he has such a great laugh too. Highly contagious. I found it especially helpful to hear how he gradually expanded his perspective from this is a personal problem that I'm having to there's a bigger systemic challenge here that affects everyone to different degrees. As always, there is extra information about this episode over in the show notes at mindovertech.com. I'd also like to thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a positive review on whichever podcast app that you use because it really helps people to find us. Finally, we have a great newsletter which you might find useful, so feel free to sign up. It's full of ideas and inspiration and practical tips too for experimenting with your digital habits. I hope you can join us again next time. Bye for now.